Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Things look so up in the air and so crazy in the world right now. We are thankful that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your word never changes. The truths in it never change. The instruction in it never changes. Your word has been relevant since the the days that it was written. And it will always be relevant no matter what the world tries to make it out to be. We thank you that in its pages are life. In its pages are power. In its pages are our saving grace. That if we repent and we take you as our Savior from our sin and the King over our lives, that we have 100% assurance we will be with you when we die and we will be with you forever. And we thank you that in its pages are the promise that you're coming back for us. So Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to, to see and to hear what you have for us this morning that it will make a real impact on us and our lives. We'll be a little bit different from this point forward. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. History is filled with sneaky tactics that nations and armies use to defeat other nations and other armies. We've all heard of the Trojan horse, but there are a lot more, less well-known sneaky tactics that were employed in war throughout history. For instance, in mid-1943, during World War II, known as Operation Mincemeat, uh, the British took the dead body of a man, created a fictitious identity that he was a British Marines officer, along with documents outlining plans to take Greece and launch a Mediterranean campaign from there, put the body and documents in a place where they knew it would be discovered and handed over to German and, more important to this deception, Italian officers. The British officers then sent frantic communications that this information had fallen into Axis hands, which they knew would be intercepted, and knew the Axis powers had taken the bait when they found out that an eyelash they had planted on one of the documents was gone. Once they had confirmed that the Axis powers had swallowed the bait that the Allies would be attacking Greece, the Allies instead launched a surprise attack on the coast of the Italian island of Sicily within a much shorter time frame and with far fewer casualties than initially expected. George Washington is famous for his, the story of his childhood that he couldn't lie about what? Chopping down his father's cherry tree, right? We've all heard that story. During the Revolutionary War, however, Washington cleverly used deception to help the Continental Army's cause as much as possible. He didn't have a whole lot of resources at his disposal, so he had to use deception. He had formed and personally funded a spy ring, used secret codes, sent letters with invisible ink, and allowed fake documents to fall into British hands. I don't know how many of us knew that Washington was up to all that uh, during the war. In fact, according to the CIA, and I quote, General Washington was more deeply involved in intelligence operations than any American general-in-chief until Dwight Eisenhower during World War II. Kind of paints him, pun intended, in a a whole new light, right? We all know of the Battle of Trenton, 
But one of the simplest sneaks that Washington pulled off was during the winter of 1777 and 78. At that point, the Continental Army was on the brink of imploding. And one full-scale attack by British General William Howe would have most certainly been the nail in the coffin of the American Revolution. So, why didn't Howe attack when he would have been assured of certain victory, the end of the war, and reward and prestige showered upon him by the crown? In short, Howe was overly anxious mostly due to letters that Washington wrote to other officers which referred to infantry and cavalry, uh, cavalry regiments that didn't actually exist, which he allowed to fall into British hands, making it seem like the Continental Army was much bigger and in a much better state than it actually was. This simple move, in part, was the only reason the Continental Army survived that winter until the spring. Some would argue that deception is crucial for winning wars. But God's word tells us that in God, there is no deceit. And even here in our passage this morning, Jesus is very clear about what God's importantly transparent plan for humanity actually is. So what is that, and what does that mean for us today? Last week, we left Jesus and the remnants of the gigantic crowd he had miraculously fed with just five loaves of bread and two fish in the middle of their conversation. Jesus, was al Jesus has already called them out that they were only chasing him because they wanted him to feed them for the rest of their lives. They understood that Jesus was the prophet that Moses said would come after him and would be like him, knowing God face to face. They also understood that Jesus was the messianic king who would establish the kingdom of abundance and peace that's talked about all throughout the Old Testament prophets. But they only thought about him in earthly terms as what he could do for them, i.e. feed them, and what he would do to kick out the Romans and finally set up this prophesied kingdom. But Jesus knew it wasn't time for that this time around. All of that would be fulfilled at his second coming. But for now, he was sent to reveal spiritual truths about God's kingdom and how people could spiritually enter that kingdom. While the people were only focused on the physical, Jesus time and time again, was redirecting them to what really mattered. That state and destination of their souls. And therefore, the spiritual. When they and the Samaritan woman at the well back in John 4 wanted endless physical bread and physical water, Jesus directed them to the bread of life and living water the only source of spiritual sustenance to carry them through life, no matter what happened in the world. The physical was only temporary. The spiritual is eternal. And that's why Jesus kept the focus of what he talked to them about on the spiritual. When you have endless spiritual sustenance, which we have in Jesus, you can face any trial, trouble, fear, lack, or darkness. Like we talked about last week, what is the only source of this bread of life and living water? The only source of this endless spiritual sustenance? 
Jesus. Jesus is the one who restores our relationship to Almighty God in prayer through his, uh, in, through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit upon us to indwell us and be that never-ending bubbling spring of spiritual sustenance, that living water. And Jesus is the one who is the embodiment of God's word, which is living and active and empowers us to live the life God has called us to. But the source is all and only the same. Only Jesus. You can't find it in anything the world has to give. You can't find it in anything the world has to give. You can't find it in any other belief system. You can't find it in any other belief that has New Ageism at its core. You can't find it in a political party. You can't find it in a political figure. You can't find it in changed laws or grassroots movements. You can't find it in anything physical. A lot of people are walking around firmly entrenched in the belief that any good that can happen in the world, any change for the good, any solutions to the world's problems can be solved in physical ways. They think that changed laws and politicians are the only hope to combat evil. They think that the more money that is thrown at a problem, the greater the chances it will be solved. They think that enough physical food, drink, sex, or good times will shove down the discontentment, purposelessness, or emptiness they continue to feel. Deep down, all they're doing is trying to find physical and human answers to what are really spiritual problems. What is really just human sin and selfishness and what is really and clearly unabashed evil. But in reality, you can only find spiritual answers to these actually spiritual problems. You can only find it in Jesus. You can only find the answers to any of these problems in Jesus and a life and a heart changed by Jesus. You can only find it by surrendering your life to the fact that your sin prevents you from pleasing God or earning your way into heaven, that you have to take sinless Jesus' death and resurrection as the only payment for your sin on your behalf. Repent and ask God for forgiveness of that sin based on that sacrifice, and then commit to living your life with Jesus as your king. That's it. That's it. Then you will get all of who God is and every form of spiritual sustenance you will ever need in this life. That's the beginning to a life of true and real faith. Jesus continues that spiritual focus along with the revelation that God is not hiding anything, but has made his plan perfectly clear to Jesus and to us. The crowd, that, the crowd has been thinking about everything Jesus has been telling them about sustenance and about God's kingdom in a purely earthly and physical way. But Jesus uses that mindset and turns it around against them to point out to them how shallow their way of thinking, especially about him, really has been. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be picking back up in verse 36. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be a Bible located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 6.36 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. We come to John chapter, 30, uh, ch chapter 6, 
Picking up in verse 36, in the middle of this conversation, and we read, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. See, the people keep demanding all these physical signs that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, and the Prophet. Even after he had already miraculously fed tens of thousands of people with no money and very little food. They demanded he just hurry up already, start giving them that new manna, that Jewish teaching believed would accompany the Messianic kingdom, and start making good on kicking out those filthy Romans. They kept demanding these physical signs that Jesus do to prove he is who he said he is. And Jesus says here in verse 36, you know... You keep demanding I do all of these additional physical signs that I'm the Messianic King. But I myself, in my physical body, with the truths I've already revealed and the wonders I've already performed, should have already been enough to prove to you that I'm the Messiah. You simply don't want to believe based on what I've already done. You just want more. You just want more. And you know what? Nothing will ever be enough for you. The people refuse to believe in Jesus based on what he's already done physically. So Jesus once again turns back to what is truly important for them. Their souls and their lives. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Here, as one biblical scholar points out, Jesus launches into a core doctrine of biblical Christianity, and that is of God's sovereignty, or his complete authority over every aspect of the universe and of the human soul, and therefore his choosing of who to provide salvation to. How do we know if God has chosen us? Jesus is very clear about that. We will know God has chosen us if we come to to Jesus in true repentance and then seek to please him with the way we live the rest of our lives. Why? Why is that? Because it's not really in our power that we're doing any of that. It is only through the leading and transformation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If there's evidence of that, then God has chosen us. It's as simple as that. If there's no evidence of that, then we really have never come to Jesus in repentance and never have really wanted to live for him. If that realization doesn't ever cause us to then do that and actually commit our lives to God through Jesus, then that's evidence that he has not chosen us. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Why? Because it means there are some that God has not chosen to come to Jesus. But how could God do that? Again, it all goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. God does not exist to serve us and do what we think is fair. God does not exist to serve us and do what we think is fair. We exist to serve God and are completely beholden to what his sovereignty has planned. See the difference between those two heart sets there? The Apostle Paul puts it this way. 
Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, and this is very important, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed, this is the Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Not my words, God's words. Either way, It's God who decides if he will display his glory in him saving us or hardening our hearts so that we don't ever come to Jesus. It's the Father's decision and one he makes for his own reasons. Either way, since we exist to serve God and not the other way around, we have to be okay with that. For those of us who have lost loved ones, who never came to Jesus, It's painful and heartbreaking. But the first step towards healing is recognizing that it was God the Father's decision and to trust Him with that. But for those who do put their faith in Jesus for their salvation, proving that God has chosen them, this is sweet and joyous affirmation that whoever comes to God based on Jesus paying their sin debt in repentance, Jesus will never cast out. Jesus will never cast out. He will always welcome all who truly see their need for a Savior. You don't need to work for it. You don't need to earn it. In fact, you can't earn it. You can't work for it. You don't need to think God thinks you're good enough for Him. Jesus promises that all those who come to Him with repentant hearts, no matter who they are, no matter what they struggle with or what their past or background is, he will always welcome with open arms. Jesus will always welcome those who come to him in true repentance because those are the ones God the Father has chosen to come to him. As such, Jesus is telling this crowd who has only been focused on the physical solution for the world that the one physically standing in front of them is the only one who can provide the spiritual and only solution to what deep down they really should be seeking. Everything he's told them and showed them has come straight to the Father, no matter what they think of it. Since he is merely acting on the, on the authority the Father has given him and only done the things the Father has wanted him to do, they can either take Jesus or leave him. Only two choices. The only response they can't have to Jesus is to want God and not want Jesus. That's the only response they can't have, and that's the only response none of us can have today either. And yet that's what a bunch of people today continue to believe. 
They think they're fine with God if they just have a general belief that God exists or even just that some kind of form of higher power exists. But like the people Jesus was talking to 2,000 years ago, it doesn't work like that. You either have to take all of God's plan, including his sovereignty, his sovereign plan that he chooses to save some and chooses not to save others, and that that decision squarely sits on taking Jesus for all of who he is or not. That's it. It's as simple as that. There's no middle ground. There's no compromise. There's no legitimate claim to agnosticism. You either take Jesus for all of who he is and all of what he's done for you, for yourself, or you don't have any of it along with any peace or assurance of where you're heading after you die. In fact, the Bible is clear about that too. If you never take Jesus for all of who he is, no matter how good-hearted you are, and no matter what you believe about God, you're headed for the same place of eternal torment and banishment from God's presence called hell as the person who constantly mocked God their whole lives or never believed he even exists. There's no middle ground. To those who have answered God's call to place their eternal hope in Jesus, taken him as both their Savior and King, Jesus' next words are words of peace and assurance. Verse 39. Verse 38 first. But I have, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of, of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. See, God's sovereignty, or again, complete authority over everything in the universe and human souls goes both ways. If God has chosen someone for his own reasons to never put their faith in Jesus for their eternity, then that decision will remain in place and unbroken until that person's last breath. But if God has chosen someone for his own reasons to put their faith in Jesus for their eternity, then that decision will remain in place and unbroken until that person's last breath. Amen? In other words, here is clear biblical evidence that once one truly comes to God in repentance based only on Jesus taking their place, ask for and receive his forgiveness for their sin, and take Jesus as the king over the rest of their lives, they will never lose their salvation. God may bring discipline in that person's life, in order to get that person back on his path for them. But that certainly does not mean that person has lost their salvation. So if you are going through a heartbreaking season in your life, that by no means means that God has given up on you or has taken away your salvation from you. This truth certainly does not give us license to knowingly harbor sin or live in sin either, though. We can't say, well, since I can't lose my salvation, I'm going to keep living this way. I know God doesn't want me to live. Paul denounces that thought clearly when he says, well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? 
What this truth reveals to us is that no matter how much or how many times Satan's army of demons whispers in your ear that God no longer loves you, that you are no longer his child, and that you've lost your salvation and eternal assurance of heaven, you can always battle those lies back with this truth. Everyone who God the Father has given to Jesus by his sovereignty, Jesus will not lose. You will not fall through the cracks. Jesus will never forget you. Jesus will never abandon you. You will always be kept in the center of both Jesus' hand and God the Father's hand. Jesus says point blank further on in this same book, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one, no one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me. Very similar language to what we just read in our passage this morning. And he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. So, who can snatch you out of either Jesus' or the Father's hands? Absolutely no one. Not Satan. Not any of his demons. Not any human who may take your life. And who else? Who else can't snatch you out of Jesus' or the Father's hand? Not even you can snatch yourself out of Jesus's or the Father's hands. If you've taken Jesus as both your Savior and your King in repentance, and you see evidence of the Holy Spirit changing you, your soul is sealed for eternity, and no one, not even yourself, can take that away from you. What this means is that the teaching that someone who commits suicide automatically goes to hell is thoroughly unbiblical and flat-out wrong. We have no clue the psychological, mental, or emotional pain someone goes through with in an attempt or all the way in going through before that point. We have no clue. We have no clue the intense spiritual warfare going on in their lives prior to that. And the same can be said for anyone who overdoses on any kind of substance. We have no clue the intense spiritual warfare, darkness, or depression that led up to either one of those types of death. But neither type of death, in and of themselves, points to where that person ended up. I'm going to say that again. Neither one of those deaths, in and of themselves, points to where that person ended up. Why? Because the only basis to where a person ends up, no matter what kind of death that happens, is all the same. It's not the form of death that has a bearing at all on that person's eternity. It's the same decision that any one of us makes according to God's sovereign will. It's only based on whether we took Jesus as our Savior and King, and that's it. Nothing else. At the same time, God's word tells us that we, should take from, that we should not take from God what is only his right. And what is that? The right to determine when a person's life ends. Whether it's the taking of the life of an unborn child or our own lives. 
We live our lives to serve God, and it will be He who determines when to take us to be with Him, including the way... uh, it, It all comes back time and time again, no matter what we're talking about, no matter what subject we're talking about, it always comes back time and time again to God's sovereignty, including the way a loved one died, whether by natural death or by tragic accident or by suicide or by overdose. As hard as it all is, we must trust God that who He has chosen, He will save. No one will snatch their soul out of His hand. And we must even and especially trust God with the way someone died. It all comes back to God's sovereignty. Ultimately, the message is all the same, no matter what the circumstances are. God's sovereignty and authority and, a pl- and plan that extends to every aspect of the universe and of our lives. And because of that, we can rest assured that our souls will always remain safe with Jesus and the Father, and nothing will change that. Our souls will be kept safe with Jesus until it's time for what Jesus refers to in verse 39. He says this, But I I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that at some point in the future, and really at some point that could happen at any moment, since nothing else prophecy-wise needs to happen before this, Jesus will partially descend out of heaven, bringing back with him all the souls of all those who put their faith and trust in him in repentance for their eternal salvation who had died prior to that point. He's going to bring all those souls back with him. He will then resurrect their bodies from the dust of the earth, just as he did at the creation of humankind in the first place, transform those bodies into glorified and perfect bodies, and reunite their souls with those bodies. Those who are still alive at that point will also be called up and given glorified bodies. And God's word tells us that we will be with Jesus forever from that moment forward. Nothing will change that part of God's sovereign plan or any part of God's sovereign plan. Just as Jesus point blank says in verse 39. And all of that is reiterated in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. God has His sovereign plan, and nothing will change that plan And that plan is transparently simple. There's no deception in it whatsoever. It's transparently simple. Anyone who believes that Jesus is all he claimed to be, God, Savior from sin, mediator between God and man, and eternal king, along with everything else that was prophesied about him, and anyone who believes that his death and resurrection was the payment for their sin on their behalf, basing their repentance and forgiveness of that sin on that and that alone, and taking Jesus as the king over the rest of their lives, will never be lost, never be forgotten, never be abandoned, never be snatched away, 
but will be raised from the dead and reunited with the soul that has been kept safe this whole time, both in life and in death, by Jesus himself. So, no matter what the kingdom of darkness whispers in your ear all day, every day, that does not change what the truth is. That does not change what the sovereignty of God is, means, and how far it extends. You are a child of God. Your soul is safe in God's hands. You are loved by the king of the universe, and he will never stop loving you. You have been given immense worth in your identity in Jesus. You are a new person. God is still transforming you, and God still has his plan for you. God will free you from the sins you struggle with the most, along with your addictions. You are the gender that God, in his sovereignty, biologically created you to be for his special purpose, which doesn't change, and he will show you that each day and empower you to live according to his word. Your identity is in Jesus, not in an identity or orientation that goes against God's blueprint for humanity, reiterated in the New Testament, and God will show you that each day along with his purpose for it and empower you to live according to his word. God did not somehow make a mistake with you when he created you, no matter what the world tells you what that mistake is. God will provide the wisdom and answers you need for whatever dilemma you're facing. God will redeem everything in your past, your past decisions, and your past trauma. You have God's sovereign hope of healing in all areas. You have the truth. No matter how much the world tells you you're wrong, God will work everything for good in your life. God has a reason for everything, even if you never see it or get why. God's sovereignty stretches to and permeates every part of this universe, this sinful world, and your life. And at the end of all of it, if you die before Jesus comes back, your soul immediately goes into his presence and will continue to be kept safe until he comes back. And when he does come back, your soul is coming back with him to be reunited with your resurrected and glorified body. And you, in your glorified state, will be with Jesus forever. So no matter what the darkness is that you're dealing with or will deal with. Beat it back with all of these statements of truth. All found, by the way, in God's word. I didn't make any of that up. It's all taken from God's word. God is sovereign. It's as simple as that. God is sovereign, and his sovereign and transparently clear plan will never be thwarted. Find your spiritual rest. Find your answers and find your hope in that truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these very powerful, very clear statements of truth in your word. Statements that come directly from Jesus himself. Lord, may we never think that you don't love us anymore, that you've abandoned us, that you forsake us. If we've taken you as our only hope for salvation, we've taken the death and resurrection of Jesus as paying for our sin on our behalf, and we come to you in repentance, 
ask you for forgiveness for that sin and make you the king over the rest of our lives. That's it. We are in the palm of your hand and no one can snatch us out from that. So as much as the world screams at us, as much as the kingdom of darkness whispers deception and lies into our ears, let us hold fast to the truth of God's word and let us hold fast to the truth that your sovereignty and your sovereign plan extends to and permeates every single aspect of our lives, no matter who we are, no matter what we struggle with, no matter what our past trauma is. And we can look forward to, with 100% full assurance, you coming back for us, and as verse 39 in our passage says, you will raise us up. Let us find our rest, our answers, and our hope in that. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.